0: In a global industry where anything can happen, where mistakes can cost far more than dollars, one oil and gas sales expert, one HSE professional, and the greatest PPE provider on the planet must come together. Two men, one brand, one mission. Red Wings Oil and Gas HSE Podcast with Mark LaCour and Pat.
1: Hey, it's Mark Lacord, and the show is for everybody who has an interest in HSE in the oil and gas industry. Brought to you by Red Wing, the leaders in PPE, ensuring your people go home safe every day. And this is episode 21. Joining me today is my Top Gun co-host, Patrick
2: Pister. How are you doing today, Patrick? Very well, Mark. Top Gun, that makes me sound all fancy. <laughs> <laughs> yeah,
1: and if you're a listener to the, the uh, podcast on a regular basis, you always uh, I come up with a different um, adjective to describe Patrick every time, because it'd be interesting to see if I ever run out. <laughs> smart. You can use smart once. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so yeah, that would be a good one, actually. <laughs> and we're actually not alone today, are we, Patrick? No, we've
2: got uh, Gary Davis here joining us.
1: How are you doing today, Gary?
3: Very good. Very good.
1: Yeah. So uh, Gary, um, before we get into what you're doing now, we had, uh, you and I just, and Patrick just finished having lunch and we're talking about stuff and you have a very long history in this industry. How'd you get in this industry originally?
3: Well, it was uh, actually a next door neighbor uh, kept telling me, I have an engineering background, of course. uh, And next door neighbor kept telling me the offshore industry is where I needed to be. be, So he he kept prompting me to make an application and go to work as a roustabout uh, for the old global marine. And,
2: uh, You're um, dating yourself with that one, no? Yeah, <laughs> I am
3: dating myself a little bit, but uh, <laughs> but uh, so eventually I did uh, go camp out on on uh, the gentleman's doorstep that he told me to go see, and I, I took a uh, my wife and I discussed it. We took a thirty five thousand dollars a year pay cut, but based on what we knew about the oil and gas industry, we had a we had a longer we had six kids to raise. So where I was, I was at the top of the food chain. I couldn't go any I couldn't go anywhere. Uh, so we ended up going off and working as a roustabout, and I stayed there for about six months and ended up in a subsea field, and that's where I've been. Every you
2: day. don't hear that too often, taking a pay cut to go offshore. Usually everybody, that's a, <laughs> it's a huge pay bump. <laughs> yeah. And what year was that, Gary?
1: About uh,
3: That was 96, 96. 95, 96.
1: Yeah, so, um, so you've seen a lot of changes in this industry because it was totally different in the 90s than it is now. Oh,
3: yeah. Yeah, it's big changes, really big changes
1: yeah, uh, so you start off as a roustabout. What happened after that?
3: Well, I got the uh, the offer to go into subsea because of my design background. and uh, and I wasn't going to take it actually. i was I was going to uh, pass it up because once I got out there doing that work, I thought, you know being a driller, that's the end thing, or uh, even a crane operator. And I had a gentleman from from Global who pulled me aside and said, we're actually offering you one of the best jobs there are in the industry as a subsea uh, so we want you to take it and we want you to run with it so actually i went a little bit uh, kicking and scratching <laughs> they, they drug me into it and uh, but the rest is history I've, I've done well in the industry uh in the field and uh i feel i've contributed so
1: yeah, and so that's really when the technology part of Subsea really started to boom, that late 90s, early 2000s, mm-hmm. so you were right there hip-deep as things were changing around you.
3: Yeah, actually it was uh, it was 2000 when I got onto my first MUX control system. Uh, I'd been working on conventional control systems with just some light exposure uh, to MUX uh, in between uh, hitches where I, where I was called out to do extra work or something. But uh, the first MUX assignment was, uh, uh, was the old Enterprise
1: when it came so Yeah, and you're not talking Starship Enterprise. No.
0: <laughs>
1: <laughs> no, Enterprise is a drill rig by, who had that rig? Transocean. Transocean, that's right, yeah. Um, and so in case our audience isn't real familiar with MUX, um, you're talking about control systems. Yes. Yeah, multiplex control systems. Multiplex control systems, and the heart of a lot of the subsea world is managed by those control systems. That's right. Yeah, and if it's not built right, if it doesn't function, something bad might happen. Yes. Yeah, so you were plugged into really uh, mission critical components. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So it's um, it's what what was considered deep water back then.
3: Deep water, uh, actually. 3,500 feet, <laughs> 35,000 foot well, and I got my picture on the drill floor for the world's deepest in, well in, the, in that water depth.
1: Yeah. You know, so. Yeah, and that's not the case now. That's no, 3,500 no. It's like standard operating. Yeah, well, that's shallow water. Shallow now. Yeah. water now. <laughs> so let's fast forward. So you got subsea experience, and you now um, actually run a company. And what's the name of your company?
3: Uh, BLP Risk Mitigation Services.
1: And so what is a BOP risk? Before we even go further, what is a BOP?
3: Uh, blowout Preventer. Yeah, and so. Control equipment for deep water
1: So what do they, what does the industry use blowout preventers for?
3: Uh, well control.
1: Right, so but it's while they're drilling. Yes. Yeah, and so later when they go in production, they use a tree and a tree and a blowout preventer sort of do the same thing sometimes.
3: They are, in, in function, almost identical.
1: Yeah, so um, the whole thing about a blowout preventer, it's literally the last line of defense in case that well starts to go south, right?
3: Uh, yes, it's the way to manage the well until you can get it back under control.
1: Yeah, and, and the, you know we are talked about technology earlier. The technology in blowout preventers is crazy, and if, if you're in our audience and you're not quite sure what this does it's literally the last line of defense to maintain control that well and it has to deal with unbelievable pressures and temperatures and uh, sometimes it has to actually operate by itself with no human intervention right that's correct. yeah so it's it's mission critical for the safety of both the people the crew the environment the operator and that actual well so when you say you do a, a risk mitigation let's get a little bit deeper into that since the BOP is so critical for everybody why do, they need to mitigate, why do they need to worry about mitigating risk on a BOP?
3: Well, we, uh, my business partners and I uh, have decades and decades of, of experience, and we've seen the traditional style of, of mitigating these losses by real-time risk assessments, identifying failures, faults, and uh, the, the design merits of the BOP system. So what we decided we would do is standardize a method that we could do the assessment in real time within a few minutes and be able to come up with the same uh, uh, technical outputs that you could if you go through this lengthy hazard process.
1: And when you say a few minutes, that's like almost unbelievable because traditionally you're talking about days. I mean, days yes. of work.
3: In, in some cases, it takes uh, days or weeks or even months to, to resolve issues.
2: So how long have you been working on this? And you told me you were, when you first brought this idea, you were met with a little bit of skepticism, that, that the industry wasn't quite ready for it when you brought it up?
3: Yeah, well, seven years ago, uh, when we started having these conversations, uh, uh, six and a half, seven years ago, uh, it was it was an ill-conceived thought that we could go through and pre-assess every known failure in a BOP system. Uh, so it was perceived back then as being unachievable. So with a, with a few standard methods for the assessment process itself, we were able to standardize how the assessment is going to be done, how it's going to be articulated, and how it's going to be structured so it can be repeatable, and that was really the mandate for us is that each and every assessment had to be repeatable. So uh, uh, once we once you take something and you generate it so it can replicate itself and be somewhat standardized, then it's much easier to assemble. So we have a standard format for doing the assessment. We have a standard format that the information has to be in, and we have a standard way that the automated system goes in, grabs that information, and pulls it into the uh, report form so it can be reviewed.
2: So just just like your peers seven years ago, I'm sure there's some people in our audience that say, there's no way you can standardize this. It, how are you able to do that?
3: Well, after we started looking at all the troubleshooting methodologies, the symptomologies, we started seeing uh, a large degree of, repeatable or the same type of activities that you would undertake for for majority of failures. So we basically start taking those categories of failures and we put them into buckets. And those buckets can get troubleshot just about the same way. Uh, Of course with different components, but the troubleshooting methodology stays the same. So a
2: lot of different types of problems that come back to a, a similar route?
3: Yes, yes. So. When we, started, when we started doing this, uh, one of the criteria that we put against it is that we had to generate statements that were repeatable. And if those statements in, in certain failure uh, circumstances could not be repeatable, then we would have to change that statement so it would retroactively cover the majority of the failures that we'd already covered. And if we couldn't do that, we had to generate a new statement that was standalone that could be replicated throughout the process. So by doing this, it's very tedious, very lengthy. But we were able to get it down to where we could standardize the assessment. Now we can do close to 33,000 separate failure modes assessment, including symptomology, how the failure would manifest itself and how the technicians in the field would recognize that failure, how they would troubleshoot that problem based on the system merits, the system design itself, and the contingency for that particular failure based on the merits of the system. As an example, if you had increased ROV capabilities, on a certain function that you've had issues with and you have a secondary or tertiary, even quadrary backup system, it would automatically take you to those other systems to make sure that you, had your, you maintained your core responsibility to well control. So by doing the assessment in this way, it's very easy for us to standardize moving forward.
1: Yeah, so Gary, I want to kind of uh, back you up a little bit. Let's talk a little bit about how this actually affects the business, right? Because what you're really talking about is a couple of things. You're talking about safety and downtime. Right. Yes. Talk about increasing um, or decreasing incidents from a safety point of view, and also decreasing downtime. But you're able to, to the business that has to be huge.
3: Well, to the uh, to the operators, drilling contractors, and third parties, it, this this helps take that entire process, a manual process that they do today, and crunch it down to its lowest or or smallest denominator. But it also gives them all of their critical areas in the stack where they may have some design weaknesses, because we do all this assessment in advance of any known failure. So if we have if we have some 22 to 30, even 35,000 separate failure events that we can go in and assess independently, it has a lot of uh, merit to be able to mitigate those. We can go in and make design uh, optimization, uh, design enhancements, I'm sorry, design enhancements so when they hit those high risk areas where they have a high probability of downtime they can engineer a way around it to make sure that they can maintain that core responsibility to well control
0: yeah
1: and in these low crude price environments anytime you can eliminate downtime that's just a plus for for everybody that's involved
3: oh yes sir yes sir
1: and so if if a large operator would implement this throughout their entire enterprise this the savings would probably be enormous compared to the way they're doing it now
3: well uh, one of the things that we like about this is typically uh, my business partners and I have been in many of these exercises where you're in downtime. There is a lot at stake for this, uh, for this particular event, and there's a lot of emotions. Emotions tend to, to take the rational thought process and remove it some in some circumstances. So, And that's what causes some of these uh, hazard, uh, HAZOP analysis, I'm sorry has up analysis and turns them from what should be just a few hours into a full day or what should be just a full day into sometimes a week, uh, you start getting emotions. You know, p- emotions run high. The rig is in downtime. The uh, the operator's anxious to, to come to some resolution. They know they have to create some type of report or some type of reporting mechanism to the regulators. Uh, all of these things start to create pressure on the people who are actually performing these, these assessments. So by doing it in advance, you have the luxury of looking at the entire system merit, 100% of the merits of the system as designed. You have the uh, you have the luxury of removing all emotion from the assessment process. You have the luxury of being a lot more thorough in your assessment. You're not looking at one system. We actually break our systems down into family of functions. So we have a closed family. On a RAM, we may have a locking function or a locking family, and then we have an open function. When you break those out into three separate families, it simplifies the circuit and also simplifies how you perceive that circuit. You can very clearly see where your mitigation properties are, what type of, of redundancy, whether you have, uh, of course, your primary pod controls. Your primary and secondary controls would be your blue and yellow pod. Tertiary and quaternary would be your intervention or your automated systems. So when you're looking at these systems, uh, they can be quite complex when you're looking at a standard set of drawings. Looking at it on our, our simulator-based uh, PNIDs with, with actual HMIs to control them, you can come up with a hypothesis, you can create the failure in, in the risk and loss mitigation tools, and you can prove out your own theories by doing this. So it also gives you the, the, an absolute brilliant communications tool because it's very visual. You can show people exactly what failure has occurred, where it's occurred, and how you are able to see that it has occurred for validation purposes, and you can also show them at the same time how you're going to mitigate that loss, how you're going to maintain that core responsibility to well control.
2: And you're not just talking internally. That's that's one aspect of it, getting the rig back running. But you also has to give, get regulatory approval. You have to get Bessie to sign off once you have a failure. This is what we're going to do, and this is what the problem is. You have to get them to sign off on that.
3: That's correct. So, That's correct.
2: So being able to show them exactly what the issue is, how you're going to mitigate, and what the results will be.
3: Well, we we actually started this process with the U.S. regulators. We started from the local region and ended up in Washington. I was in the National Technical Conference. I was one, one of the uh, four panels on technical discussions. Uh, my particular presentation was on this, risk and loss mitigation. How do we pre-assess and how do we have these ready-made risk assessments for every failure on a BOP system? Well, that led to a conversation with the uh, director of Bessie, which was James Watson at the time, and we were coming up with uh, a synergy between the regional managers, the uh, uh, national technical director, which was Ben Coco at the time, and methods for us to effectively communicate how these failures have affected our system and how we're going to mitigate that loss, how we're going to maintain that core responsibility to well control. And they had some pre-training that's given them some uh, tools to use in this risk and loss mitigation environment, which were reliability block diagrams, fault trees. They understood the language very, very well. So we incorporated that in as well as breaking and simplifying the circuit into these family of function block diagrams. So we agreed uh, that how this would communicate would get to the simple facts, the technical facts of the case, how they were, how the the failure had impacted the equipment, how they were, how we were going to mitigate that based on the system design, and how we were going to move forward to maintain that core responsibility to well control. Once we had agreed on what the format, what the tools would have to deliver for them to accept it, then we move forward with development and delivery. So. Uh, uh, a lot of thought has been gone into. We've taken a lot of feedback from the operators and drilling contractors, everybody from the guy who's out there turning a wrench on a stack to the guy who's having to operate the operate the company, the CEOs, to get their feedback on what this should incorporate and how this should should uh, how this should impact their business for in these circumstances. So the very first one that this of this type of system that was put together it was a very manual process. Uh, the manual process was you had to go find the specific component, the component ID. You had to you had to search for those information fields that were relevant to the risk and loss mitigation report that you were trying to generate, and it became a little bit cumbersome for the average technician. So what we did uh, was we completely automated the entire system. So it's one step. Basically, you go to the simulator, you click on the Famicar report, and then you uh, you enter in the uh, component ID. That, you, that you're dealing with, the failure mode, and the rest of the risk and loss mitigation report is completed for you, including uh, symptomology, including troubleshooting, uh, and, and contingency plan for those failures. Uh, the one thing that we could not take into account, we could only deal with the technical facts of the BLP system being assessed. So when it comes to operational circumstances, which always plays into these decisions, these are very large decisions, but the operational circumstances, we we came to the conclusion that if we tried to generate an operational circumstance for every single failure, we run into possibilities that, that actually run into the millions, right. the millions of scenarios. So we decided to leave that out. We'll do a, a separate assessment that incorporates the, the uh, uh, operational circumstances at the time of the failure and just stick with with the technical facts of the case being generated.
1: So Gary, I want to back you up a little bit. You talk about communications, and so what y'all are doing with this simulation has to be ideal for training, and y'all actually offer training, don't y'all?
3: Yes, yeah, we do do have uh, both distance learning or e-learning and instructor-led training to teach technicians that have to handle this equipment how to mitigate losses before it becomes a loss. Right. So we have an IDC accredited course called Safeguarding Equipment Reliability. And that Safeguarding Equipment Reliability is the core fundamentals that all technicians should know on how to recognize failures, how to recognize the causes of those failures, and how to mitigate that loss, how to take appropriate action to make sure that they don't have repetitive failures. We also teach preemptive actions, how to do their inspection, how to really look at the equipment to make sure that what they're doing, even though it looks perfectly fine to them at the time that they're doing it, that isn't already set up to be a failure. Simple dimensionalization to see if there's a gap tolerance wider than the actual seal standoff in the seal profile that they're applying. How to recognize the types of failure that can impact their equipment in any one piece of equipment and how to react to that information rather than just see an an excessively extruded O-ring and just change out the O-ring and put put the equipment back into service. They understand that there's only several causes that can be The root cause of this extruded o ring, so, uh, or excessively extruded o ring, so they know what action to take to safeguard their equipment from the word go, you know. And this is based, this is just really core fundamental training on how to safeguard the reliability of the equipment. We love our our risk and loss mitigation tools, but what we really want as uh, subsea engineers ourselves. What we really want is to help people prevent these from occurring. These these incidents, these failures in the field, try to prevent them from occurring in the first place. And that's where our training program takes place.
1: Yeah, and let's talk about the people element because you and I and Patrick all know that the people part is where the most risk resides. Yes. Yeah. Um, and so by actually mitigating the people part of as much as possible, it actually makes a, a large difference in what can possibly happen because the people element is always the one that has the biggest amount of impact on a blowout preventer.
3: Well, I've done, I have done a lot of technical investigations in the field with component failures and system failures, and I have yet to run across even one investigation where it was, where it was not a human-related Uh, failure somewhere along the lines. It's at the manufacturing level. Uh, I like to use the example in my training program that if I have a a designer who puts puts together a, a really brilliant valve design and it goes to his supervisor who trusts this designer very, very much and he doesn't really check the design for proper tolerances, for proper material selection, those type of things, and he just sends it on to the supervisor or the manager for approval. And of course, he believes that that particular design has been checked by his supervisor. Well, he approves it for prototype, it goes to prototype, it gets tested, and it doesn't fail. We tend to test our equipment in this industry, uh, uh, fail to pass or or test to pass rather than test to fail. And if we can get it to pass a, a pressure test, then we believe we have a good product and we can put it in service. So the root cause is always founded in a human in human error it can come at the design phase it can come at the assembly phase and it can come at the at the end user phase during assembly and disassembly for regular regular maintenance the majority of the failures that i've actually seen in the field have be- have been post manufacturing and have been related directly to uh, mishandling by humans you know uh, during the assembly or disassembly so we really hone in on what these guys have control over they don't have control over the design but they do have control over the knowledge of how, these, how this equipment can fail, and when it does fail, why it failed, and what corrective actions they need to take to make sure it doesn't happen to them again.
2: What have you seen in the root cause of that? So you've got guys in the field doing something they're not supposed to be doing, or putting something in backwards, or some, some hands on it caused it. Is it lack of experience, lack of training? Did they get promoted too fast when the boom was on? What are you seeing are the causes of those?
3: Well, really, it can be all of the above. Uh, I, give you, I give you a great example. I had one individual who, in his heart of hearts, felt like he was doing the greatest job he could possibly. He thought he was being the best subsea he could be by his ability to rebuild valves as quickly or, or faster than anybody else on the rig. What he missed in his assessment was being able to do it fast, doesn't necessarily mean able to do it right. And what he was doing is making some very small mistakes. And basically, all it was was a a backup ring, a wear band that he aligned the splices on over a T-seal in a cage. And he did it repetitively because it was easy and it was fast for him to do it in this systematic way that he had had, uh, developed to do this. What he didn't realize is that he was creating a gap for that seal to extrude once the energy of the pressure or the, the hydraulic fluid hit it and energized the seal was forcing the seal down between those gaps that he had left in the splices, and that created failure in multiple components. But in his, per, in his perspective, he felt like he was doing a great job because he got the job done fast, he got the valves back on, and he got a test on those valves very quickly. What he didn't anticipate is the, is the high infant mortality that he was creating by just simple little things that he was doing.
2: Well, in so, subsea engineers, they, they typically work alone. There's, there's one, maybe two on the rig, if you've got a BOP on deck, you may have a SWAT team out there, but they're pretty much on their own doing their job. So if you don't have somebody coming in and doing what you did to observe him working this process, yeah. it could go on forever. Hey, he could be yeah. doing the same things
3: wrong in perpetuity. Yes. Well, that, that is the problem is with sy- systemic problem, uh, with failures that repeat themselves over and over again. It's often not the craftsman who identifies himself as the root cause of the problem. Uh, you know, they dismiss it as seal failure. And that we hear a lot in our industry where a guy just says, "Ah, it's another bad seal. They replace the seal and they put it back in service um, without really knowing what happened to the seal. So what we really focus on is teaching these guys how to cite this. Uh, We understand from our own experiences and through years and years of experience of training that when you go to a training course and you get a specific handout or you get You get little uh, takeaways from it. You go through a five-day course. You get a participation uh, certificate saying that you were there. And after uh, two weeks or three weeks, the flyers go in a drawer, and you never even look back at that information you just received. So we structured our training program so it's very easy for our craftsmen in the field, our technicians, to take this information and put it into use day one. So they constantly are using this information that we give them and it becomes part of their every every day. When they take something apart, it's a method that they think while they're doing the assessment, they're asking themselves these questions. You know, this seal has failed. Why did it fail? This is the failure mode I'm seeing. This are the potential causes. You know, they may take the action of dimensionalizing to see what the gap tolerance is. Uh, the one thing that, uh, that really stands out when I was doing that, this one investigation where the splices were aligned, while I was dimensionalizing the seal standoff on the inner cage, before I had started disassembly, the supervisor on the rig actually approached me and asked me if I was a forensic scientist. <laughs> and uh, and I laughed, just like you guys just did. And I said, nope, I'm a subsea engineer. And when I take something apart that just caused downtime, I want to know why it caused downtime. So what I found during that dimensionalization was the seal standoff in that one area where I couldn't identify at that time where the seal was Had uh, extruded uh, beyond the wear band was that there was only four thousandths of seal contact actually on the face of the poppet. So, with everything else having nine to twelve thousandths of seal contact and that one area having a very shallow, of course, at depth the valve leaked. When you brought it back to the surface, we got a good test on the valve. So, that explained why we had two different results in those two different environments. And I was able to explain to him exactly how I did it, why I did it, and now what I needed to do to move forward to make sure it didn't happen again. So, with that exercise, even though he thought it was it was a little overboard at the time, it, it wasn't long before he had another valve sitting out on the shop, on on the on the bench right next to me, and he was doing exactly the same thing. So, and it took him uh, first time it was kind of slow because it's cumbersome. He's not used to doing that kind of work, but after a while, he was doing the just like it was second nature to them. So we want to build our training uh, so the guys in the field are not impeding that critical time they think, they really do feel that a good job is being done by how quickly you can do something, but it's how quickly you can do it right Right. and make sure that you don't create the potential for failure rather than install failure into your equipment. So uh, we've designed our, our programs to do just that, to make sure that they understand the core fundamental information that they can use on every everything that they take apart in the way of controls equipment, everything they can take apart, they can inspect and then reassemble to make sure that, that all of those critical components, those so sealing components and mechanical components interact as prescribed or as designed to make sure that they have the highest degree of reliability in that equipment possible.
1: Yeah, so Gary, it's a good time for me to stop you here. Uh, it's time for our Red Wing safety tip of the week. What's your safety tip of the week?
3: Oh, my safety tip? would definitely have to be use the right tools for the job if you're doing inspections uh, on equipment uh, especially valves something like that make sure you are using calibrated uh, micrometers make sure that you're using uh, a proper durometer make sure your visual inspections are are proper but use the right tool for the job Uh, if you're just eyeballing something that's a couple thou, more than likely you're not going to see it (laughs) (laughs) right
1: yeah that um, that reminds me one that times my dad fussed me at the most that I was using a crescent wrench for a hammer. And it's a fu- that exact thing goes, use the right tool for the job. So that's a great safety tip. Um, we have uh, a bag winner. Um, our bag winner today is Dimitri Andreev. He's uh, a production engineer at Occidental Petroleum Corporation. Uh, congratulations, Dimitri. You've won this awesome Red Wing Offshore Bag. Uh, Gary, if you'd like to win an offshore bag, it's fairly easy to do. All you have to do is go to uh, redwingshoes.com forward slash podcast that's redwingshoes.com forward slash podcasts. No purchase necessary. See official site for rules and details. An audience you can go as well, not just Gary. So if you want one of these awesome bags, go, go hit it. Redwingshoes.com forward slash podcast. Uh, Patrick, what the heck is going on with the LinkedIn group?
2: The LinkedIn group, the Oil and Gas Global Network, or OGGN, it's the easiest way to find it. That's a companion to the podcast. It's also got the uh, Oil and Gas This Week podcast on it. Go there ask questions, give advice, you know, just talk things about the industry because it's a oil and gas global network. It's for everybody in this industry around the world to share their best practices, best experiences. Uh, It's a great resource for you.
1: Yeah, and we have some live events coming up. We're going to make the announcement there first. So if you'd like to join Patrick and I and have a drink and a bite to eat and have a little bit of fun, go join LinkedIn groups to be notified first. Now, We have lost all our reviews,
2: Patrick. (laughs) We were doing so well for a while.
1: I know. I am so sorry. So we had some technical errors. We had to change our iTunes feed. So please, 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 if you left left us a review, can you go back and leave us another one? And if you (laughs) haven't left us a review, take the couple minutes. Give us a a thumbs up uh, on iTunes. It helps us uh, rank higher in the search engines. It also helps your peers find us and realize they should listen to us or maybe not listen to us. And if you
2: left one and we lost it, blame Mark. I had nothing to do with that. <laughs> it is totally
1: my fault. I will take all of that blame right now. And then uh, if you like the show, can you do me a favor and share it? We actually have a website, On that, There's an email sign-up form so you can find out about the new um, podcasts when they go out live, any blog posts, anything we're doing, go sign up. We promise not to spam you. And then for the first time, Patrick, we're actually doing Facebook Live. So We hi-
2: are. We're, we're live right now. Yeah. Hello.
1: I did our Facebook Live on it. <laughs> Um, we're going to see how that works for us. If we get a lot of thumbs down, may, this may be the last time that we do it. <laughs> but uh, go check out the the website, and we also have. That's
2: the one good thing about losing the reviews is it, it came in it, with the new website. It's just the Oil and Gas HSE Podcast website, so you can go there and find us very quickly and easily.
1: Yeah, and if you go to the website, there's like a gazillion ways to listen to us. I don't know how our webmaster pulled that off, but she did a great job. <laughs> And then Patrick, you and I will be on the road.
2: We are very shortly. The uh, Mid-Continent Digital Oil Field Conference is taking place in two weeks, January 25th to the 26th, 7th, Yep. Is that right?
1: Yep, and if you're, if you're a company out there looking to generate some business from, from the operators, um, from the service companies, Go to this conference. Go set up a booth. Reach out to them. It's not very expensive. You know, the price of oil's uh, ticking back up. Rig counts going up. It's time for you to spend your marketing dollars, and this is a great place. Now, Patrick, we have to say thank you to both the Oklahoma Energy Resource Board. Absolutely. Yeah, and to SOAR, uh, Sustain Oklahoma's Energy Resources, and also to V2Com. Uh, all three of these companies are making this trip possible, so hats off to them. Uh, Patrick will put links in the show notes so you can go visit and go see what they're doing. And, then and we're
2: actually going to get this podcast out before we head to that event. So if you're going to the uh, Mid-Continent Digital Oil Field Conference, you Conference, know, find us. Mark and I will be wandering around the conference, talking to people, uh, maybe even uh, recording a couple podcasts. Yeah, so
1: we're going to be recording podcasts, and we're also uh, dragging Paige up there, Patrick. So uh, you may not know Paige yet, but Paige has been the project manager for OGG for The audience a while.
2: knows Paige. She yeah. took my spot last oh. week. She was here. Yeah. That's
1: right. And so Paige has her own show coming out. So all three podcasts will be at... Um, the Digital All-Field Conference recording. So if you want to get on the podcast, you want to see us do it, and you don't want to do it on Facebook Live, come meet us up in Oklahoma. It's going to be a great uh, show.
2: And if you come talk to us, we're not going to make you get on the podcast. <laughs> no, no, just no. Just
1: come say hi. Um, we'll also be at NAEP uh, in February here in Houston. We'll be Process oil and gas here in Houston in March. We're going to SPE HSE Conference in New Orleans, and we'll be at OTCMA with National Allwell Varco. So if you'd like Patrick and I to come to your trade association, your company event, your conference, your school, your HSE meetings, or even your gun club, pretty simple stuff. Reach out to Patrick and I. We'll share the details. We'll be happy to come out there and talk with you.
2: Yeah, let's get a gun club. Somebody take me clay shooting. I need to.
1: I want to go do three. I want to go do three gun. So yeah, take me three gun. Take uh, Patrick to do sporting clays.
2: Uh, don't forget our our live event. Our live event's coming up first quarter 2017. It'll probably be in the back end, but we're actually working through some of the logistical concerns and and hammering out some details, so it is happening. Yeah, and,
1: and since we said it on the air, we have to make it happen. Mm-hmm. So Gary, it's a thanks for being on the show today. This was awesome. If people want oh, to learn y'all. Yeah, people want to learn more about you and your company. Where should they go?
3: Uh www.blpriskmitigation.com. Okay. Or they can reach directly out to uh, myself uh, at Gary, that's two R's, Gary.Davis at BOPRiskMitigation.com. Yeah, let's stick his LinkedIn profile with Patrick. Don't put his email
2: address in
1: the
3: Yeah, show absolutely. Notes. We'll have your
2: LinkedIn profile in there and a link to the uh, the, the company website, so people can come check out what you're doing.
1: Yeah. So, uh, great show, very deep stuff. Um, BOPs are vital to the industry. Gary's out here rocking and rolling, making sure everybody stays safe and we have less downtime. Patrick, it's about time for us to get out of here. Yeah, let's do it, Mark. All right, so folks, don't be afraid to give up
2: the good to go for the great. Y'all be safe out there.
0: Tune in next week for another exciting episode of Red Wings Oil and Gas HSC Podcast, a production of the Global Oil and Gas Network. Learn more from Mark LaCour at modalpoint.com. Connect with Patrick Pister at leanoilfield.com. From Houston to London to Dubai and beyond.
3: went out on a rig for an accident investigation and uh, it was quite amazing to me they had a a stabbing board for the for the uh, casing stabbing board and they had just completed a full rig inspection and the cable that actually extended and retracted the board was corroded to the point where i could tear it apart with my hand they missed it well thank goodness that the uh, the gentleman who was working for the casing company got out on the stabbing board, and that cable let him go, and it collapsed. Uh, And he should have been tied off to the stabbing board when it occurred. And what he had done to himself is he had taken his belt, and he had tied himself to uh, tie wraps rather than hard tying to, to his belt. So when it collapsed underneath of him, the tie wraps allowed it to break away instead of yanking him in half. Otherwise, God. it was a, it was a, it was a, just a tragedy. It right. really was a tragedy.